Welcome to Back to the Bins. We're so glad you could join us. Whether you're a brand new listener or you've been listening from the very beginning, we appreciate your patronage and hope you'll continue coming back each and every week for more Back Issue goodness. I'm your co-host, Scott Gardner, and it is my pleasure to welcome back to this program Mr. Michael Bailey. Thank you very much, Scott. I'm very happy to be back. Hey, happy to have you. And uh, I am really looking forward to this one. This is a yes. yeah. This is a very special episode of Back to the Bins. And you may be asking yourself, "Well, what's so damn special about it?" Well, let me ask you this: Did you know that there is a character that kind of, sort of, maybe could be classified as a superhero that has been both published by Marvel Comics and? made a significant contribution to the lore of DC Comics. And no, I'm not talking about Doc Savage. Now, recently, off the air, Michael and I, we had a very long, very interesting conversation, and it rambled all over the place. And something that came up in the course of that conversation is that we both share a, a fascination and a soft spot for a particular obscure comic book character. So tonight, we are going to examine that character and his comic book history, and that character is Hugo Danner. And I'm just wondering how many listeners are going, Hugo Danner, who the hell is Hugo Danner? Well, you're going to find out, so just be patient, goddammit. Well, well, anybody that that read Young All-Stars is going to be like, oh, Hugo Danner. Yeah, I'm hoping so anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You wanna you wanna cover the the origins of this character in uh, well, how he yeah. came to be? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Um, back in 1932, a novel was released called Gladiator, and you would think with a title the excuse me the Gladiator, and you would think with a title like that it would be set in ancient Rome. Well, <laughs> no. Uh, this was written by a gentleman named Philip Wiley, who uh, who who had written some stuff before and after that. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the book that really put him on the map. It was like Vipers at Our Bosom or something like that. Yeah, yeah, the one about the attack on the American mother or something like that. Yeah, and uh, I had heard about this book, and I, I, I sat in with a friend of mine from high school. I went, I visited her at college once, and I sat in on her comics and literature class. And they were talking about this novel called The Gladiator. And I was I was just like, well, what the heck does this have to do with comics? Well, it turns out that this 1932 novel is about a character named Hugo Danner that is faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap a tall building in a single bound, and not even a bursting shell could penetrate his skin. And I went, well, you know, that sounds an awful lot like the Golden Age Superman. Mm-hmm. So for years, I searched for this book. Um, two, to be exact. And I, I finally found it in a secondhand bookstore, and it is a fascinating read. I have a really beat-up copy. Uh, it is about a character named Hugo Danner, whose scientist father had developed this serum that if you if injected while a child is in utero, uh, that child will grow up and have all of these fantastic powers. And... Basically, Hugo Danner is messed up from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. He does not have an easy life whatsoever. He is considered kind of a freak in his hometown until he gets into high school and he's able to hide his abilities a little better. 
Uh, he goes off to college, has a bunch of misadventures there, one involving going to New York City and, and, and having all of his money stolen by what is essentially a prostitute, mm-hmm. and having to get into a illegal fight to, to get money to get back to college. Uh, while playing football in college, he accidentally kills another player and realizes that if anyone figures out what and who he is, uh, it could cause trouble for his father. So he leaves, and he goes on all... He j- spends the novel trying to find himself and find his place in the world and how to best use the abilities that he has been given to help people. And what he keeps finding is that no matter what situation he is in, people hate and fear him. And, and you know, he, he, try, he, he fights in World War I and almost single and decides that he's going to put a, uh, an end to this war once and for all. And then that is when the armistice is declared. He gets a job at a bank and ends up saving a man who's trapped in a safe, and they accuse him of just working at the bank so he could rob them. He works in, like, a, a steel mill and is fired because he's making everyone else look bad. He tries to get involved in politics, and that doesn't work out for him either either because he finds that all of these people that he gets involved with are just out for themselves and they're not out for the public good. And finally, he ends up in, uh, I believe it's the Yucatan? Yeah, something like that, yeah. With a professor trying to, uh, going on this expedition, and the professor discovers who he is and what he can do, and he's like, we're going to create, we should create an entire race of you to go out and help the world, and Hugo realizes if people hate me, they're going to hate an entire race of people like me even more because we're going to be better than them. And ends up, I don't know if he commits suicide. It's really kind of ambiguous, but he gets struck by a lightning bolt and, and dies, and that's kind of the end of the book. And what it struck me as uh, uh, when I first read it back in '97 was this is a Marvel Comics version of Superman. Because hmm. he's got all of the same powers, but it never goes right for him. It's kind of like Spider-Man in a lot of ways. No matter what he tries to do to help people, it always comes to bite him in the ass. And it's a really interesting take on taking a Superman-type character and... You know, I hate to say this because, you know, it was written kind of as a pulp novel. But taking a, a Superman-like character and examining, well, what would this be like in the real world? Right. And what it does is two things. One, it provides a very interesting literary character, and you can examine what it what it would be like in, again, quote-unquote, the real world if somebody had these abilities. And two, it makes Superman even more unique of a literary character because here is a guy that has every reason to think that the world will fear him and yet chooses to be a hero anyways. And because of that, finds some form of acceptance. So it's like two different spectrums of the same character. And it's a very well-written book, too. Uh, it's written in wily speak because the, the, the dialogue is very specific to, to this novel. I've never read anything like it before or since. So, 
uh, and the and the speeches the speeches that he gives are just in this very interesting. I don't even know how to describe it. People don't talk like this, basically. <laughs> or maybe it's because I didn't grow up in the 30s and people did talk like this. But um, a lot of people say that this was one of the, this character was one of the inspirations for Superman. Uh, I happen to agree with that, that, even though the official story is that Jerry Siegel never read it. I'm really glad to hear you say that because that's actually one of my notes. Is my note simply says I call bullshit, which is, you know, with all respect to uh, Siegel and Schuster, I find it absolutely unbelievable that he read this book, yet it had absolutely no influence or impact on him at all, because there are so, so many parallels between the events in this novel and the the character himself, his abilities, certain circumstances and situations he finds himself in, and, say, the first half-dozen issues of Action Comics, you know, featuring Superman. I, I just... I really cannot believe that there aren't moments that are stolen, you know, outright from this. I mean, stolen might be a little bit harsh of a term, you know, but but definitely borrowed and influenced. You know, I mean, the the characters are incredibly similar. It's just, it's almost insulting to the intelligence to believe that that <laughs> Superman is not a son of Hugo Danner, you know, in in a in a literary sense. Well. You know, it's never come to light, but there is anecdotal evidence that uh, Siegel wrote a review of this book for one of his early fanzines. Mm -hmm. And considering, you know, Reign of the Superman, which was... Yeah, I was going to mention that one too, yeah. (laughs) We're just in sync. Oh, we are, Um, totally. um, Which was written in 1933. I mean, that's a really specific time to come up with uh, a character like that. And like you said, I'm not thinking that that he ripped him off because obviously Superman was the champion of the weak and the oppressed, but eventually he was accepted by the society he worked in. Right. You know, yes, in his original adventures, he was hunted by the law, but that was changed very quickly because they're like, hey, kids like this. (laughs) So we we need to change that in a heartbeat. (laughs) I prefer the term "borrowed" because I don't. I don't mean to say that he, you know, he swiped the character. No, it's, not, it's no, nothing not like that. But it's, it's very much the same way that George Lucas, you know, when he came up with the first Star Wars film, I mean, he very obviously borrowed from every influence in his life, from Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon to Lord of the Rings to Doctor Doom and the Fantastic Four. I mean, he borrowed from the things that influenced him as a as as a young geek, you know, and, and adapted those ideas into what eventually became Star Wars. You know, and, and Jerry Siegel did very much the same thing, you know, whether it be stories from the Bible of Samson and Moses and things like that to things like this, you know, the story of and Doc Dan. Savage. And Doc and- Savage, yeah, absolutely. And and they all kinda melded and blended together to eventually form Superman. So I, you know, that that's all I mean by that. You know, he he yeah. borrowed from the influences around him, the the things he read and the things he saw that, you know, all coalesced to eventually become Superman, but I I think that this was probably one hell of an influence on him. 
Well, and yes, he was probably told to say he never read it because he could it could be actionable, right? <laughs> by Wiley and his people, it's just like, yeah, I read that book. You know, it looks an awful lot like this. No, I didn't. Didn't read it. Not at all. Never even heard of it. Philip who? <laughs> What's a book? I mean, <laughs> well, the the thing I was going to mention about Philip Wiley is. Uh, the the thing I I would remember him most from I would argue most other people that you know if they've heard of him at all that they might remember him for was uh, was a really good science fiction movie back in the fifties called uh, When Worlds Collide I believe it won an Oscar for special effects if I remember correctly it's a little bit funny looking today because this movie was of course made before we actually really went into space and you know sent a man to the moon or anything like that so it was all very speculatory of what that sort of thing would be like but it was a movie about well you know it's based on his novel his novel is about the earth is uh, is going to collide with another planet and there's basically like a, a noah's ark type spaceship built that can only save a, a handful of people and you know they eventually made a big budget, you know, blockbuster movie about it in the in the 1950s, and it's it's still a really, it's very quaint by today's standards, but it's still a really good movie if you ever get a chance to see it. That's that's probably the thing he's most known for, I would argue. And then you know you mentioned Reign of the Superman, you know, for those not familiar with that, that was actually like a precursor to the Superman. You know that we would eventually see in Action Comics number one, and he was more of like a bad guy, evil scientist type of thing. Yeah, he was a he was a bald villain that had all these mental powers and used them to try to take over the Earth. Mm-hmm. And, and then you know he kind of reworked it into a very pulpish type character. There's some early artwork <clears throat> by Jerry uh, by Joe Schuster where he's wearing like a black wife beater, basically. And, no. and pants and, and fighting people like that. Now, does that story, the reign of the Superman, does that predate Gladiator, or is that after Gladiator? It's after Gladiator because that came out. Uh, the The date's a little fuzzy. I've read like three different dates. Some of it say like late uh, late nineteen thirty three. Some say early nineteen thirty four. Um, but. Uh, if you Google Reign of the Superman and hit the images link, you will actually see, because people have scanned in the pages, mm-hmm. uh, and you can see what it looks like, because it's this very weird, like, bald character hovering over the text. It's kind of neat to see. Seeing as how that character is so different from the Superman we would eventually see, like in action number one, I wonder if it's conceivable that that he actually came up with the evil Superman first, then somewhere along the line read Gladiator, and then uh, you know would eventually come up with the Superman that we would we would eventually you know that would eventually see print if it if if it influenced him that much because it just seems so. It's it's very similar. I mean, Hugo yeah. Danner is a tall, black-haired. Not heavily muscled, but very physically fit young man, and it's just like really and truly. If you ta- if you drew a cos- uh, Superman costume on any of the artwork we're about to discuss, mm-hmm. uh, it would look just like Superman. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just the the visual is that strong. But you know, it's like you said, Siegel was influenced by so many things, right? 
you know, going into that. And the George Lucas analogy was was spot on. I, I I'd really like to th- know if he ever read any of the New Gods comics. I wouldn't doubt it. Before, I mean, before I, coming into uh, Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that he was quite the comics geek right up until you know, right right into the time of Star Wars because he was big into uh, you know Howard the Duck. You know that he would eventually you know finance that <laughs> that film and everything. So I mean, that was right in the right in the same era as Star Wars. You know, right in the in the same mm-hmm. uh, couple of years as Star Wars. So I mean, he was still reading comics at that point and really into them. So yeah, I, I could easily see him being influenced by, by all of Kirby's work. You know, it's interesting. You say this is almost Superman through the, through the Marvel lens, you know, like a Marvel version of Superman. Cause at first I was thinking, hmm, I don't know if I see that, but you know, I, I actually do because this is really, it's kind of Superman done through the X-Men lens, you know, the X-Men yeah. are, feared and hated by by a world they've sworn to protect or whatever you know that that catchphrase is so this is very much superman that way you know where he's trying to do the right thing but because he is a god among men basically that he's kind of feared and and not so much hated but he's definitely feared and he he's a you know he's an outcast he stands apart from everybody else and it's like no matter how much good he tries to do it's always outweighed by the fact that that you know he he frightens the people around him and that he never quite becomes that that uh that superman you know savior christ figure kind of thing you know he's he's more of uh, of the outcast yeah it's it's very uh, <clears throat> it's very much wiley's commentary on humanity in the early 30s yes uh, of of how it's like we're just a messed up people, and if someone came along like this, we would try to destroy him at every turn, even though he is the one that could potentially save us. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know how, how much uh, of a religious overtones that he was trying to do with the book. Uh, I mean, the the mother of Hugo Danner is an extremely religious woman, but Wiley, I have always gotten the feeling, especially through this novel, does not like women. Right. Does not like women at all. Thinks that they are fairly useless creatures. Because every single woman in this book is just an either inept, overbearing, or uh, not worthy of Hugo yeah, uh, d- disposable. And, and, and his life. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the book Generation of Vipers was basically about Wiley saying the mothers of America are you know, castrating the male, and it's going to lead to this uh, generation of, uh, uh, of non-effective men, and something has to be done about it. No, and li- and he, knowing that, and reading this book, I'm like, this guy, this guy didn't like women at all, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. And it really carries through, at least in the comics that I've read, that he's kind of dismissive of the women around him. Well, also, you uh, know, most, is. yeah, most, yeah, exactly. Most of the relationships he's in, you know, the the women are almost a a, a, a disposable uh, pleasure for him. You know, he he really goes through women like, and they can't know. satisfy him. Right, and that's the other thing. <laughs> and I liked that. That that to me, you know, while it is you know very very brutal to the to the women in that aspect. 
it also kind of lends to the overall picture of you know it, it it reminded me a lot of uh of the Jeff Goldblum version of the fly you know when he gets you know the 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 super abilities and the in the whatever the the qualities of the fly he becomes like sexually voracious and i think that that lends well to the character of hugo you know he's supposed to be this physically perfect vi- physically advanced man yeah. So I could kind of see that to where he's this super alpha male, and so then his sexual appetite is increased along with every other attribute he's got. You know, he's, he's stronger, faster, smarter, all these other things, so why wouldn't he also be hornier? And I, I think exactly. that, that was, you know, I, I, honestly, I think that was a pretty interesting way to take it. You know, I, you could almost see Superman. You know, if, if DC dared to go that direction, you could almost see Superman being that way too. I mean, why not? He's he's like the ultimate male specimen on Earth. Why wouldn't he be the same way? Really, I am all that is man. <laughs> <laughs> well, another interesting thing, um, wrapping up, you know, the the Gladiator novel is where he battles politicians. I mean, that was very yes. much a Superman, you know, an early Golden Age Superman thing, you know, where he would try to uh, right wrongs and, you know, we'd see him like in action number one, go grab people, you know, out of windows and, and you know, jump out of windows and jump around buildings and stuff with these politicians trying to, you know, change their minds or, or you know, get his particular way with them. I, I, you know, I, that's another parallel that I definitely saw in this Tear down a tear down a slum so that the government can rebuild it into better housing for people. It's like really. <laughs> I read something interesting uh, while I was uh, brushing up on this uh, online. There was an article about the the part where he fights the wrestler for money. Yes, and it didn't occur to me, but you know, there was another famous superhero who early yes. in his career fought a wrestler for money as well, which was Spider Man. And, you know, I don't know that, you know, it could be traced at all that, that Stan Lee, get, you know, got any sort of influence from this or anything. But I just, I find that extremely interesting that, you know, to, you know, I don't know that, that that's another thing. Would you classify Hugo Danner as a hero? I would only because in his own way, he is trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Even when he fights in World War One. And he's just killing people right and left. Right. He is doing it because he thinks it's the right thing to do. Right. And really and truly, a man of that of that era, that would be heroic. Mm-hmm. That would be what a hero is. You know, he joins the army and he fights the bad guys. And, you know, he saves a man from a shark. I would even classify him playing football as him being a hero. Because especially, I mean, it, it's, it's outrageous now. But people who have been good at sports have always been held up as idols to That's be true. worshipped. So it's like everything this man does, you know, tracks back to him thinking he's doing it the right thing. You know, he you know he hears a man is trapped in a safe. I'm going to do something about this. You know, he he thinks that there is wrongs to in Washington, D.C., so I'm going to go to Washington, D.C., and I'm going to use my power and influence to try to change things, only to discover that no one wants anything to be changed. I mean, there's these two political prisoners that are going to die. And he's like, I can break them out of jail. 
And the people, this communist organization that, that he's gotten hooked up with is like, no, we don't want you to do that because they work better for us as martyrs. As martyrs he's, like, right. he's like, you sons of bitches. <laughs> I fucking hate all of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I ask that because, you know, the next thing that we're going to cover in, in the saga of Hugo Danner was now um, in the winter of 1976, Marvel Comics was producing a black and white oversized magazine. That's when I was born. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> February 29th, 1976. Oh my god, you just made me feel so old. Oh, yeah, like that 8 years <laughs> is really going to kill you. <laughs> well, I remember 1976 though. <laughs> but uh they were putting out this this magazine called Marvel Preview. And in the ninth issue, it had a beautiful painted cover on it by Earl Norum. I mean, it's just an absolutely gorgeous painted cover of this very, um, you know, he looks like a cross between like uh, like Doc Savage, Superman, and Samson. He's kind of, I can't figure out, he's either pushing these buildings apart or holding these buildings up, one of the two. And in the background... It literally looks like the world is ending. You see buildings toppling over and all this fire and floods and all this destruction and everything. And it's, it's hard to figure out, is he saving something or is he, is he bringing it all down? But it's just a gorgeous cover of him. You know, he's, he's shirtless and his pants are all ripped up. and he's. It's know, a very pulp yeah. um, um, uh, cover. Right. Really? Yeah, I, I think so too. It's just I'd love to see a poster made of this. I, I think I've always thought this was a great piece of art. But you know, the the cover blurb on it is the first and greatest superhero of all time, and they call him Man God on the cover because you know obviously they could not call him Superman. Although that's really what they're hinting at is that he's you know a a form of Superman. But when I first read that and I said you know greatest superhero, and I thought. I don't see Hugo Danner as a superhero, but you know, yeah, I think you're right. You know, in the context of the story, you know, being, you know, that it takes place, you know, leading up to and through World War One. I, I think in the context of this story, as you say, he is trying to do the right thing. So while he never dons a cape and a costume or a mask per se, he, he still is like a like a proto superhero. So yeah, I guess I can buy that now, but I used to always have trouble with with that concept of him as a hero because he does do you know, he kills people for one thing, you know, and he does do some But that was a very things. heroic thing for pulp heroes to do. And, right. and, and he right. and he fits right in that mold too. I mean, the shadow in Doc Savage, it's like Jesus. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, they had quite the quite the kill count in their day. <laughs> well, this uh this book was written by uh, by Roy Thomas, who you know we we've would come to know over the years with things like Marvel's Invaders and with DC he oh. do books like All Star Squadron and and things like that. That he is you know quite learned and quite the fan of of this type of thing. You know this era of the Golden Age heroes, the Golden Age superheroes, the pulp heroes, that sort of thing. So he wrote this, and uh, up to a point, up to let me see. Up to the point where World War One ends, and he was just about to go in to try to basically single-handedly stop the war himself. That's where the adaptation ends. But up to that point, it is a pretty faithful 
literal adaptation of the novel of the of basically the entire life of Hugo Danner. And what I find really, really remarkable about this book is, you know, I, I find the the story is written in a very adult sense. You know, because this was one of Marvel's black and white books, you know, the oversized books, it wasn't considered necessarily a comic book. It was more of what what Marvel was doing as an experiment during that time were the comic magazines. Like uh, there was a Dracula one and some different ones. So they were much more adult. They had more adult material. So while there's not necessarily, you know, there's not swearing or tits or anything like that in this, there's still, there's, you know... Not in this one. <laughs> yeah, not yet. But, you know, there there is, you know, sex is in there very blatantly. It's just, you know, it's not shown blatantly, but, I mean, he's blatantly, you know, he, he's very loose, you know, with women and stuff like that. There's a lot of violence, um things like that. It, it's very adult material, and it's handled in a very adult fashion. But the thing that, that I love the most about this is I am a big fan of Tony DiZaniga. But we really have not seen a whole lot, or at least I've not seen a whole lot, of Tony DiZaniga as the full artist. Usually, when I've ever seen him, he's the inker. But in this particular book, he handles all of the art chores, and it is absolutely gorgeous to behold. It is so beautiful, especially in black and white. Now, I'm not a big fan of black and white comics either, but this works. It really lends to the the period feel of the book, and you know, no matter what's going on, whether it's the small, you know, middle America town at the turn of the century or whether it's him playing on the football field or him when he's working as a as a strong man at Coney Island or any of these different scenes man it i mean you can tell that 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 he really researched the era it looks and feels and it it looks like you could just step right into it like it's a time machine he so totally captures the feel of all the places that that are shown in this tale and it's just beautiful i mean the art is so rich and so detailed i mean he did not skimp or rush you know the backgrounds are filled in and and the art's just gorgeous you know there's a part where uh, where hugo goes you know with his friends to new york city and this is like turn of the century new york city and it's just I mean, it, it, it's just gorgeous. It, it looks like a photograph without looking photo-referenced, if you know what I mean. I mean, it just yeah. looks like the man really did his homework. Just a beautiful, beautiful book. And then, there, you know, at the back, there's a short, not terribly flattering biography of Philip Wiley. I mean, it pretty much tells it like it is, that <laughs> he was something of a jerk, I guess, in real life. And then there's even a nice little uh, thing called Superman in Science Fiction, which talks about all the other heroes sort of like Hugo Danner, you know, from Flash Gordon to, you know, to whoever. And there's even a brief mention of, you know, Siegel and Schuster's Superman that kind of beats around the bush about what we're talking about because this is a Marvel magazine after all, but... I mean, really interesting. You know, ri- original cover price on this was a buck. I'm not sure what it's worth today. I would think that you could probably still find it for a pretty decent price, and I highly recommend it, you know, because it is a great story, but the art is just fantastic. 
And I just checked eBay, and it's like three, four bucks. Yeah, see, yeah, you can get it on the cheap. It is so worth it. And what what I really like about it is that it, it is intended to be the first half of the complete uh, adaptation of the novel, but they never finished it. And in a way, I think that really lends to the enjoyment of this particular one, because if I have one criticism of the Gladiator novel, it, it is that I think the ending is really bad. And yeah. The only complaint I have is that I, I think Wiley basically wrote himself into a corner where he realized, what else can I do to this poor bastard? And so at the end of the story... You know, Danner literally goes to the top of what is it, like a pyramid or something. Yeah, and he basically challenges God, you know, and God smites him, and that's how the book ends with with God basically striking him dead. And it's just like, I say oh. thee nay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much how it ends. So, you know, the fact that this ends very open-ended and it almost feels like an origin issue it almost feels like a number one of a new superhero book i like that i like that feel and you know i i still when i read this i i still imagine in my mind that you know this this could have led to you know a whole series of comics about hugo danner because you know the 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 superman that we would eventually get you know the the golden age superman I love that Superman, but he really didn't last very long, you know, in, in no. that role of, of social crusader. And I think that that role is still open. I think that there's still interest out there for somebody to go back and write, you know, a, a historical Superman-like figure set in that era doing the things that the Golden Age Superman did. And uh, and I think that that somebody like that could be you know Hugo Danner or the next character that we'll talk about Iron Monroe. But before we get into that, I want to take a little break and we'll come right back and we'll talk about the next chapter in the life of Hugo Danner. Doctor Scott Gardner, podcaster par excellence, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strength that all nerds have. Then, an accidental overdose of common sense alters his body chemistry. And now, when Scott Gardner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. Fuck! $3.99! Can you fucking believe $3.99 for this shit? For Christ's sakes, I can remember when these friggin' things were 15 The creature is driven by rage and egged on by an instigative co-host. He's got a fat head! You shouldn't like him with a fat head! Creature is wanted for curse words he did not omit. Scott Gardner is believed to be a freak, and he must let the world think that he is a freak until he can find a way to control the raging fanboy that dwells within him. Do you know why uh, Superman became a force for truth and justice and a member of the establishment? You know, I, I don't. I honestly don't know if I know that. They uh, they wanted to bring him more in line with Batman. Oh no way! I, I have a book here. 
if you're interested in borrowing it, you're, you're welcome to it, called Batman Unmasked. And it's kind of an... This, this guy, Will Brooker, convinced the government of England to give him money to do his PhD on Batman. And uh, he writes this... He has, it has four sections to it, but in one of those chapters, he's just like, if you look at where Batman was and where Superman was, Batman was the the one for law and order and then Superman was made to be the same way to bring him in line when they were trying to make DC characters more kid friendly I guess you could say uh, more wholesome yeah mm-hmm. I can which see I that. think is totally ironic because Batman is considered you know the outlaw and the dangerous one and, 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 <laughs> and he was he's why Superman is the way he is today. You know, as as much as you know, I, I I love Superman, and of course, I grew up in the era where he was the way he is basically today. You know, more more of the you know almost this this mythical super Santa Claus type of figure that flies around saving people. I love going back and reading that original stuff of how he was when he first came along. You know, more yeah. you know, like like in the in the Fleischer cartoons, I love that stuff. I love seeing him as like the the social crusader in you know smash Speaking of the guy that shows up and go nah this shit's not happening yeah yeah exactly I love that and uh, man I'd I, I'd love to see more done with that era and uh, let's uh, at this point I'm going to transition into the young all stars but first I wanted to give a little bit of history on this but at the same rate don't don't let me. Uh, Bogart the you know Bogart oh, no. conversation either. I mean, correct me if I get any of this wrong because I'm really going off the top of my head for leading into who Iron Monroe is and all that. But uh, well, basically, we can blame Crisis on Infinite Earths yeah. for, for for Iron Monroe, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, well, you know, after the crisis, my my understanding is that you know, well, for one thing, Roy Thomas felt really screwed by Infinite, or yeah, Infinite Crisis, by Crisis on Infinite Earths, and I think rightly so because the man worked his ass off to really create a solid backstory and tight continuity and all that with the original Golden Age stuff with DC, and was really right in the midst, right in the thick of doing that, and really tightening up. You know all these old, somewhat silly Golden Age like JSA stories and everything, and really creating a solid timeline and all that. And then right in the middle of that, they do Crisis on Infinite Earths and basically throw out the majority of all this stuff that he had written. Well, well, he took a he took a concept that was basically a novelty mm-hmm. for DC Comics. He took the multiple Earths and he took Earth Two, where all the Golden Age heroes live. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what? Yeah, we had that great all-star run back in the 70s, and it was great. God, that's an awesome series. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we have the Justice League and the Justice Society meeting up once a year to hang out and have coffee and and, and fight, you know, Darkseid or or the the Shadow King or, or, is, that, or is that an X-Men villain? Anyways, whoever <laughs> killed Mr. Terrific. Um, and, and I'm going to take this, and I'm going to do... Not only a World War II book, but I'm also going to take these characters and, like you said, develop them. And then I'm going to show what their children are like. And 
and help create a new generation of heroes on Earth 2 with Infinity Incorporated. Because they used Star Spangled Kid and Power Girl and Huntress, but they also created the sons and daughters of the JSA with Silver Scarab and Fury and Northwind, who I don't really care about, but (laughs) and Nuclon and Obsidian and Jade. And from what I understand in reading several interviews with him, he was told, oh, yeah, you'll be able to keep the Golden Age Superman. We're just going to keep your book separate. And they're like, nah, nah, you got to fall in line. Sorry. Sorry. You know, but, you know, we're a company and we're a big monolithic organization and you're going to do what we want to do. So he's kind of like, well, how do I do the Golden Age of DC Comics without Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman? And I guess to a lesser extent, Aquaman and uh, Green Arrow. Right. Mm-hmm. And those characters. So he creates the young All-Stars. Mm-hmm. With, I think the way he explained it was that there is this missing energy. Right, yeah. that Yeah, the energy thing. I was going to touch on that. Cause... And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> That's interesting. But And that these characters are created. You had the Flying Fox... Who, you know, I always felt that Axis America was more of doppelgangers yes. of the uh, of of the characters, which I thought was kind of cool because that was their big the young all stars big villains with uh, Ubermensch yep. and Valkyrie and the Great Horned Owl, Die Flutter Flighter Mouse, and yeah. the other one there. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Sea Wolf. I, <laughs> I think that was done purposely, actually, that, to where the the villains of the team were were actually a closer analog, you know, to the to the missing, you know, the now missing characters than than the actual young all stars were. But yeah, I don't I don't know why he went with the you know the the energy of Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. I, I think all he really had to say was, well, now there's a hole. In yeah. the continuity, and we need to fill it. We need to plug it with something. And you know, as much as I really enjoyed this this comic, you know, it didn't last very long. It lasted what, like thirty one issues or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only character I really felt any attachment to, the only one that 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 really struck a chord with me, and the one that kept me reading the book was Iron Monroe. Because he was the super Superman analog, and right out of the gate, you know, right with the very first issue, I saw where he was not only the Superman placeholder, but he was very much the the Golden Age original, you know, social crusader style Superman placeholder, and that with a with a very different set of morals, mm-hmm. I would say, because right off the bat. I mean, when when we're first introduced to him, he's he's having sex or about to. <laughs> That's true. In the first issue, <laughs> That's and he's true. still in high school, which is kind of scandalous in 1941. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and he wore white pants after Labor Day. I mean, that was just, that was just terrible. <laughs> it was awful. There's I no liked his look, though. No, I like. Oh, the, oh the black t-shirt and the white pants. That was yeah. that. I like the look too. That's a great costume. It's. I I'm surprised have, I don't see more people cosplaying as it because it's kind of easy to pull off. I, I can I could have lived without the without the skunk hair. You know, he's kind of got the rogue thing going on where he's got like the white streak. But I think that owes back 
to the visualization of Hugo Danner in that Marvel preview because he's drawn that way in that book where he's got you know very much Superman hair but with the white streak right right down the middle and you know the the issues that you and I are going to talk about of Young All Stars is Young All Stars ten and eleven. Now Young All Stars number ten starts out with you know the the uh, what do you call it? Not wraparound. What do you call that when it's got a story? It's got like a an opener and a begin uh, an opener and a and a Damn it! It's a TV term, and I'm just, I'm blanking. I can't think of what. No, it is. I know what you're talking about. It's basically it has an introductory and and an, right. an introductory scene, which sets up because one of the things that set up. I think that's what I was looking for. The setup. Well, I mean, the the um the thing about Hugo Danner is the mystery until this issue was who is his father, right? Because they don't know why he is so strong, and that's why when they introduce Axis America, and you have the character of Ubermensch. Um, you know, they're like, well, this guy's got all of my powers. He's just older than me. Is he my father? Mm -hmm. And, uh, when this opens, they're basically going back to Denver for, uh, for a bond rally. And that's where he's from. I'm with you. I, I think Iron Monroe is a great character. I really think it's funny of the things that Roy Thomas did to make him different from Superman. Right, because in one of the early issues, he and and I, either Neptune Perkins or Flying Fox go off to Coney Island, and he has sex with a girl under the pier and ends up getting VD. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, I'd forgot about that. And it's just it's just like okay, and and what's interesting is because of that, and what you didn't know at the time when you were reading it. Uh, well, I did, but I wasn't reading it as, a, as it was coming out. But what you didn't know is that they were setting up that he is the son of Hugo Danner. Because as we're going to discuss again and again and again, Hugo Danner's a bit of a horn dog, mm -hmm. and, and like father, like son. Which, yeah, that's actually the the name of this two part story in number ten mm -hmm. and eleven is uh, number ten is the the title of it is like father, and then the title of number eleven is like son. So I get a kick out of that. Great covers on both of these by uh, was that Malcolm Jones the third, who I'm not terribly familiar with, but the covers are beautiful. Yeah, the interior art is shit, but the covers are. Oh, uh, come on now! I'm you know, not a fan of Brian Murray. I wasn't a fan of him on Supreme. I'm not a fan of him on this. I was just going to ask what became of this guy because other than this particular issue, I don't know that I've seen his art on anything else. And did, did you read Supreme? No, from Image? no, no, I didn't. He did the first couple issues of that. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, I mean, it is wonky in places, but I, I look at this, and you know what it really reminds me an awful lot of? It reminds me of the very beginnings of uh, of Todd McFarlane, like on early, early issues of, uh, say, like Infinity Inc. or something like that. I, I can see, see a, that. Yeah, I see some real parallels, but I'll tell you the page that wins me over is uh, is page 12. It's a full-page splash of an absolutely scary-looking, enraged um, Hugo Danner taking out an entire trench full of World War One Germans. I mean, he's just yes. mopping the floor with these guys, and it's a, a just beautiful piece of art. I mean, the, the faces on the Germans are really kind of strange. They've all got this really bizarre-looking, like 
old man zombie face thing going on, but still the, the just the look on Danner, you know, he's you know, his teeth are gritted and his eyes are just wild and he's just just mowing a path through these guys and uh, yeah. I, I love yeah. that. Yeah, but then there's page 18 where they show Iron Monroe reading the journal and he looks like he's <laughs> looking at porn. <laughs> Is that the one where he's making kind of the dah face? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the interesting thing about these two issues, and I'm just going to interject this before I forget to, is uh, I bought these at a at a used bookstore the same day I bought Gladiator, and I had no wow. idea that they were connected. Oh my god! Uh, how what? How about a coincidence, man? That's yeah. Wild. I mean, when I finally read both, I'm like, "You're kidding me!" Oh my god. Now I'm pretty sure that I sought Gladiator out because of reading this because the you know in the back of is it number ten? Yeah, it's number ten. You know, on the letters page, there's one of those you know nice little uh, editor things that DC used to do. You know, the, the the little yellow box that would tell you all kinds of extra information about mm-hmm. a particular issue or oh yeah. Artist Thomas's footnotes were like must reading in every issue of any bo- of any All Star Squadron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he would give you so much backstory on on what it was that he had written about or or particular characters or where he had pulled something. And that's what he did with this one, you know. His, 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 this one just says a note on Hugo Danner, and it just explains, you know, that this guy, you know, it was not made up for this issue. That you know, he actually had pulled him from this book, Gladiator, and you know, so instantly I was hooked. You know, I, I'm 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 a, always a sucker for Superman esque characters, you know, and, uh-huh. and especially you know characters that lent into the creation of Superman. I'm, I'm always fascinated by them and i want to read about them so i mean this this book just or i mean this uh issue just fired my imagination so i i had to seek that book out and well thomas did that with just about every character in young all-stars if you look at the cast and the origins he created for them he really tied everything back into a work of literature i think neptune perkins origin had something to do with 20,000 leagues under the sea <laughs> yeah and i, he, I just as soon forget about that but yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> right. you're right that it did well my problem with that one is uh okay this is going to go off into really nitpicky geeky territory but while that's neat that he did tie it into that he also had um you know the the you know in in Neptune Perkins' origin, um, the Titanic was actually sank by a, a, a man you know a man made iceberg that rammed into the Titanic, <laughs> and then you know as the ship was sinking, they like tore the side of the ship open to get the gold off of the ship. That was the whole plan. Now, for one, the Titanic didn't carry any gold. And for two, if you ripped the side of the ship open, it would have sank in about, you know, two minutes as opposed to two hours. So, but, you know, that's neither here. And he also brought Frankenstein in, the Frankenstein monster, as like kind of an ongoing character for a little while, too. I remember reading this going, wow, he is just pulling from everything on this. I don't remember that. Is that in Young All-Stars? It was when it was they they go to the Arctic for some reason, and there's Frankenstein's monster. Oh man, I know. I'm glad I don't remember that actually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
No, but this first, this the, you know, issue ten is just a very quick retelling of the novel, mm-hmm. um, and and I think it, it's serviceable. I, I, you know, the great thing about the novel is is how much into detail he goes into certain elements. But you know, if you're just trying to catch people up on it, this this was a very good way to do it. And he actually completes the story in in this one in a lot fewer pages than than the Marvel uh that Marvel preview issue goes. You know, that that one's I forget how many pages that one runs, but it's I mean it's a full size magazine where this is, you know, just twenty something pages. But he actually manages to get the entire novel and you know it actually ends you know, where the novel ends with, with Hugo being struck down by God basically and that's how the whole thing ends. Anyway, and it's told at you know where uh, you know in the beginning of the story, uh, Arn Monroe sits down to read the journal of Hugo Danner that he somehow gained possession of. I forget how he got a hold of the book. I think the professor sent it to him. Uh, uh, the the professor that he had gone to, he had been given it to by a priest down in the Caribbean. That's right. Yeah, and that and the, and the priest had been given it by. Prof Hearted. Hey, I forgot that I had this signed by Roy Thomas. Oh, wow. Yeah. I have both of these. Is, are both of them? Yes, they are. Okay, very good. <laughs> oh, wow. So, you lucky bastard. <laughs> I've been hearing that a lot lately. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's it, it's a good story in, in like I said, in that if you're going to explain the origin of a character, this is the way you want to do it. Right. And it is kind of sad. A, a really interesting thing that I just noticed as we've been flipping through it is all the ads are at the end of the book. Yeah. And I don't know why they did that. But they let the basically thing run commercial free until the last page when you get this kind of neat little pinup that Brian Murray did of the Young All-Stars versus Axis America uh, with a K. And then you have all the ads for, like, a subscription to Checkmate and that dumb Sega ad I saw a thousand times <laughs> as a kid. Even an ad for Captain Power. <laughs> I love all I noticed in the very next issue, though, that, that there are some in-house yeah. ads interjected. Now, I liked I, – I did reread both of these before the show, and I, I liked number 11 as well because although – you know, all of Hugo Danner's story was told in number 10. You know, number 11 is a nice, you know, conclusion to that story because then we get more of, you know, Arn Monroe now coming to grips with the fact of now he knows who his father was and everything. You know, he confronts his mother about it and, and she basically fills in the blanks of, uh, of, of Arn's origin. You know, how is, how is Arn... How it conceived and, and everything when, you know, this was supposedly a couple of years after Hugo Danner had perished and all that. And it, and it fills in that story. And, you know, I don't want to spoil it or anything, but it, it was really good and I really enjoyed it. And another thing that comes up in this, there's a, a, a brief flashback to a scene from Gladiator where um, Hugo Danner had created basically what you could equate to being a fortress of solitude for mm-hmm. himself. You know, so that was another parallel between him and, you know, much later in Superman's history, but eventually Superman would have his own 
fortresses, you know, uh, of solitude. And so I just think that that's really interesting that there are so many parallels between those two characters. Well, there, there, there's two... Roy Thomas does two things in this issue that he loves to do, and I think it was in the letters pages of either All-Star All Squadron or this title where the term retroactive continuity right. really started entering the comic book lexicon. And that is, one, in the book, his father on his deathbed reveals to Hugo that he can't pass his abilities onto his children. Right. That if he wants to give the children uh, his abilities, he's going to have to repeat the process. And two, and 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 I'm just going to spoil this one little bit because of something we're going to talk about probably in a couple of minutes. Uh, he didn't die. Right. So it's just like two things Roy Thomas loves to do: retroactive continuity, and he, or one thing Roy Thomas loves to do: retroactive continuity, and he does it twice. So, uh, <laughs> and 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 like you said, he 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 fills in a little bit more of the novel in very specific scenes. Right. That scene with the Fortress of Solitude was always one of my favorites from the book because it was one of the early indications that Hugo was kind of screwed from the very beginning. Right. And, but you also get kind of a similar scenes with Arn playing baseball when he's a kid and learning that he has to hide who he is and, and, and hide his abilities because people are going to think he's a freak. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, uh, our, our, we get more of Hugo Danner getting busy in this issue. So. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was quite the horny toad, I'll tell you what. Now, but, uh, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh no, no, you're you're probably going the same place I am with the uh, with when he comes back. Oh yeah, oh god, oh sweet Jesus! Uh, <laughs> the last four issues of Young All Stars are not the finest moments in the, the uh, series history. <laughs> I, I'd like to reread them now just to see if it would change my opinion at all. But all I can really remember about them is that they find Hugo still alive, still living down in some South American country where he basically went ahead with his professor friend's idea of creating a whole race of Superman or something like that. And he, he really becomes the villain of the story. And that's about all I really remember. I was really disappointed in it because for one, I didn't like the look that they gave him. He, he had his you know, military looking outfit with a sun logo on it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and he had the big handlebar mustache and all that, so he really looked like some, I don't know, like some movie serial villain or something. I really didn't Who like... Who wants a mustache ride? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't care for that, but I mean, I did like the fact, though, that, you know, as you say, Roy Thomas brought him back, you know, that, that he he basically, you know, the, the retcon the fact that he had died in such a cheesy fashion. I liked that. I just didn't like what they did with him, and I think in that in the end of that story, he actually dies again. Supposedly, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that there's still potential that he could be brought back. He could be used, and and even if he's not, even if that ends up being the end of Hugo Danner necessarily, I think that there's still great potential for his son, um, Iron Monroe, I would love to see DC dust that character off and really do something with him. 
outside of putting him in like guest appearances and and really not doing much with the character itself, I I always thought you could do a really great dark noir type book with him, where he's kind of a private investigator type oh, character sure. who yeah. just goes to the places you can't go. Well, and, you know, his, uh, his or role, something like that. His role in in Damage, you know, he he was kind of a minor supporting character in in Damage for a little bit, and he kind of struck me that way. He he was kind of uh, you know like a he was brought into that title, and he was kind of like the veteran adventurer, you know that that Damage kind of looked up to. But he wasn't really a superhero necessarily. He was living so, on a houseboat with the human bomb. I mean, yeah. That's right. Wow, you've got a good memory for those details, I'll tell you, because that's, wow, I had totally forgotten that. I'm just amused by the concept of anybody living on a houseboat with a human bomb. I think that's why it's true. <laughs> really? You're going to live with that guy? I mean, we talked about the Freedom Fighters in the last time we got together. Right, that's true. It's just like, who's just, who's going to hang around with the guy named the human bomb? You touch him and you explode. That, you know, now that you say that, I wonder why Arn Monroe was not with the Freedom Fighters when they got the crap kicked out of him in Infinite Crisis. Um, he was there because I remember he wasn't there. He wasn't part of the Freedom Fighters because that was a government team, and I doubt he would work for the government. Mm. So, but he was in that book. I forget where he was. Also in Justice in J. Excuse me, JSA number fifty. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they showed a, a dude in a black shirt and white pants. It was like a crowd the- scene or something, right? Where they're all like fighting something. No, it, it's the problem is that it, it's the problem with the type of character Iron Monroe is is that he is he is a minor character in DC unless they can tie it to a larger book. I don't think that they would invest the time and money in developing the character, but. Right. I have always, since discovering him, liked him as a character simply because, uh, one, of his connection with Hugo Danner, and two, of the fact that he is kind of, not the smarmy Superman, but he's kind of like the, the uh, I walk down these mean streets alone right. type of Superman. Like right. he, is the, he is the gritty, dark, noir shadow. That right. that that you know, he's not a complicated character, but he is a complicated character because of the choices he makes, and you just want to see him beating on people because he's really freaking strong. <laughs> well, if if they did bring him back and they did something with him, what I'd like to see them do with him is use him very much in that uh, in uh, in that time period. You know, it's set it. Yeah, you know. Set it, or even in the fifties. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a, that's a period that would be very interesting because, you know, with all the the continuity things that DC's done over the years with the different crises and stuff, I'm pretty sure now that there's supposed to be quite the gap in in superheroes between the time that the the original JSA would have retired and then the first of the modern age of heroes would have started to appear. So he could be one of those gap heroes. And yeah, they, they tried to do something like that, a Martian Manhunter with the justice experiment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which I always thought was an interesting concept that I didn't like. 
Yeah, I, I kind of vaguely remember that, and yeah, it, it kind of made me uncomfortable as well. But you know, you were talking about him as a, as kind of a dark noirish type of character. I think that that would work perfectly with that character set, like you say, in the fifties. In kind of a you know, so he would kind of be like an edgy, not really superhero superhero set in the fifties. So he wouldn't be necessarily costumed or caped or anything. But he would still be, you know, a, a, a metahuman operating in that superheroless period of the 1950s. I think that could be a damn good concept right there. Written and drawn by Darwin Cook. Ooh. Ooh, I don't know about that, but... I like Darwin Cook. So. <laughs> I like Darwin Cook, but that's as far as I'll go. I like him. <laughs> but, yeah, send your hate mail to... <laughs> but, uh... Well, my my last wish for 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 uh, Arn Monroe would be uh, I've always wanted to see, and I, I I'm pretty sure this hasn't ever happened. I would love to see he and Superman meet and have yes. a, like an old fashioned DC Comics Presents style crossover because I would love to see the sons of Hugo Danner both literally and figuratively I would love to see them in the same story side by side and we have not yet really gotten that because because on the surface of it it seems like a gimmick but when you really think of it that's an examination of who they are I mean it's very meta in a way but at the same time it's an examination of two characters that have very similar backgrounds that have a connection, even tangentially, and how they are different from each other as heroes. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, Superman does it because it's the right thing to do, so does Iron Monroe, but only because of this and that. I mean, he he joined, it seems like he joined the young All-Stars because there was nothing else going on. (laughs) It does feel that way, yeah. He was like 17, 18 years old. Here was a group of kids his age. I think Dan the Dynamite had a crush on him. I'm not sure. I always felt that way, that there was something weird going on with the Dynamite kid. Well, uh, there, is, there was a panel shoot. I'll probably never be able to find it now. I think it was toward the end of number 11, I think. I know exactly what you're talking about, where, where he's he, hugging. Yeah, him. he gives him a hug, and it looks like he's Look. planting a big old wet one. Uh, yeah, it I is. I thought the same thing. It looks like they're making out. Yeah, and it, it and the next shot is like somebody with a bow and arrow. I'm like, is that Cupid? And And, and the great thing is the panel right under that, He's still hugging him, but Iron Monroe's letting go like, dude, enough. You're okay? in my space. <laughs> the girl I want to have sex with is right next to me. And uh, you're making this look really bad for me. So I like you. I just don't like you. All right, this is the 40s. That's not acceptable yet. <laughs> now, wasn't Dan the Dynamite the, the same guy that... Uh was uh I don't want to give the story away for people that haven't read it, but wasn't he the guy that became Dynaman in, in Golden Age? In Golden Age? Yeah. Okay. So I don't I wonder how those two reconcile exactly. Other book I absolutely love. But yeah, yeah, me too. Well we're running extremely long for this. I am so sorry. No, 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 no. It's it's I mean there's so much meat here I could go on and on. But I do want to touch briefly on uh the other saga of Hugh Danner, which is uh, in uh, 
published in April through July of 2005 by Wildstorm. There was a series, a four-issue series called Legend. And it was yes. written by uh, Howard Chaikin with uh, covers, pencils, and inks by Russ Heath. And I re- you know, I've had this in my possession for the longest time but had never read it until it was time to do this show. And I really, really, really enjoyed it. You know, I'm not the biggest uh, Russ Heath fan. I find his art very serviceable and all, but it's just got that kind of, I don't even know how to describe it. It's kind of that weird, almost like woodcut looking kind of yeah, art that I, I can don't agree with that. really, you know, it's just not really my thing. But damn, did I enjoy this. I, you know, And I'm really curious how this sold. Because these, I didn't realize it until, because I'm pretty sure I scored these for like less than 50 cents a piece at some major sale somewhere. Bought but, them as they came out. Did you really? No, I, I, I specifically had them held because it was uh, Gladiator. Ah, okay. Well, these were, they went for a whopping five ninety five a piece. And it's like, holy cow. I mean, that's expensive, man. Well, there's no ads in the book whatsoever. Right. So there's that, and it is beautifully illustrated. Oh, yeah. I have some issues with it, personally, just in, in, in the manner... Some of the things that Howard Chaikin did, but we'll get to that in a second. Cause you mean as far as language or updating or... or the updating I had a problem with. Oh, really? I'm not the type of person that normally likes people, when they're doing an adaptation, to stick with the source material. Mm-hmm. But with something like this, I felt that Hugo Danner worked very well in the World War One era. Yeah, I'll buy that. And, and when you update him into the Vietnam War, as Howard Chaikin did, I understand that that kind of makes it more relatable to the person who's picking this up. And it may have made it more relatable to Chaikin to adapt the material. Uh, it's very easy to see in places where... Wiley ended and Chaikin picked up because uh, I have no problem with the language in this book, but Jesus Christ, the language in this book. Yeah. I mean, and boobs. Yeah, that was one of my notes too is boobies. Yeah, I'm always always pleased to start into. I mean, it's Howard Chaikin. So, you know, when when I first heard that Howard Chaikin was writing this, I went, man, they're really going to play up those sex scenes now that Chaikin's involved. Well, I'm just and, glad that um, none of his girlfriends ended up being trannies or anything like yeah. black kids. <laughs> I'm really happy that that was not where it went with any of this. But um, but I think updating it, it doesn't hurt the story because it still works very well. But as far as people not finding out about him, I think it's a lot easier to do that in the World War One era. In the, in the teens and the early 20s because the media wasn't as prevalent. I mean, when you, Vietnam is the first war that was really brought home to people on their televisions, on the nightly news, where you could see things going on. Right. And I have a hard time that a camera didn't catch any of the wild shit he did. And two, I don't think he works well with hippies because... Or in that kind of hippie-esque era. I mean, like, the carnival scene doesn't work for me at all because the the carnival that he 
works at in, over the summer because his father lost all his money and they were broke. Um, the carnival he works at seems very much something you would find in the teens, like a boardwalk carnival. Mm-hmm. And I don't see a strong band act really working in the 60s and 70s. I mean, that could be uh, my ignorance good, that's a good of it. Point. Yeah, no, I, 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 you, now that you say that, that's, that's, I think that's an excellent point. Because there's still a lot of points in this book, I, I think in the first two books, really, that feel like it's still in that turn-of-the-century, you know, 1910 era, and then all of a sudden you get to the third book, and he's going to Nam. And it, it is, maybe it's just because I'm more familiar with the original version, but seriously, I mean, reading especially this very first issue, I mean, you look at the, the art, and you look at the era and the way things are portrayed, and it still feels very much like it could be the original era of the novel. But then you get into the second issue where he goes into town in high school and it's Bobby Socks and rock and roll and all that. Um, You know, (laughs) the skirt that Anna Blake wears at their dance is like so insanely short. I think that's too short even for the time period. (laughs) But but then, yeah, and this is the issue where the sex starts ramping up. Like, oh yeah, I brought these to work to reread, and I quickly closed this one because I'm sitting in the break room reading <laughs> while on my lunch, going, "Someone's gonna find me in here, and I'm gonna get freaking fired." And that's all there is to it. My manager's gonna walk in. <laughs> but I mean, and that that was the thing we we we, we touched on it earlier in the episode. But Chaikin really plays up how insatiable he is sexually. Right. And, I mean, there are some very specific lines of dialogue that I won't reread because they make me uncomfortable. But, (laughs) you prude. No, I'm I'm just saying, it's just, basically he talks about jerking off and her giving him a handjob. Sweet. Yeah, it's just like, but, you know, the, the scene where he and Anna have sex, the scene where... Where he and the 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 cousin to his friend in college uh, go at it quite heavily. Uh, the scene where he and the girl he hooks up with on the uh, on the boardwalk. I mean, it's just like my God, this 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 is like a movie you stumble on on Cinemax <laughs> at about two o'clock in the morning. There is a there is a page in here during the carnival scene where it has the girl eating a hot dog. And he's got a look on his face like I'm thinking of something else other than her eating this hot dog. <laughs> but the problem the other problem I have with the series in general is something that can't be helped is that he doesn't take the time to explore certain areas that I thought were the heart of the novel. It's like there's a conversation between Hugo and his college football coach where his football coach is like, look, over the summer I went to Indian Creek, Colorado. Your dad told me everything. I know all about you, uh, but I'm not going to do anything about it because I think you seem to think you're doing the right thing. And in the book, he goes on this huge monologue about all of the things that are swirling in his head. 
And he's like, you know what? I can do anything. No one can stop me. And sometimes I feel like wrecking the entire world. And I don't. And that's right around the time... That's literally like the day before he ends up killing one of the opposing players. Which you can kind of see parallels in, you know, like that season of Smallville where Clark was playing football. But he doesn't go into any of that. So... Someone coming into this series, like off the street, would probably think it's just a tough guy action movie with lots of sex and violence. Right. And I think it loses some of the subtleties. But it's a beautifully drawn series. It's very well written. I think Chaikin gets the character, but a lot of that comes from me knowing who the character is. Yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out ultimately when I finished this was... You know, did I enjoy it because it was a solid book, or did I enjoy it because I'm already a fan and I'm already familiar with this character? And that was one of the things that I still hadn't quite figured out because the changes that he made, you know, the updating, it didn't really bother me very much. I mean, I still thought it was was very enjoyable, and I actually in I actually kind of enjoyed seeing Hugo Danner in a in a different time error you know time frame and all in a, in a different slightly different interpretation however ultimately i felt it was kind of pointless because if you're going to update him then update him but bringing him from world war 1 to vietnam still didn't make a lot of sense to me because i i'm you know maybe the, maybe i'm off base here but i'm thinking that Modern audiences, modern comic book readers, and I'm talking young people in their 20s to 30s, I think that they're just as unfamiliar with Vietnam as they are with friggin' World War One. To them, it's ancient history. You yeah, know? So while, I would agree with that. You know, while Howard Chaikin may be terribly familiar with you know, the era of, of Vietnam and everything, it may be very fresh to him because he probably lived through it and remembers the protests and all the things that went on. For younger readers, you know, it might as well be the goddamn Civil War. You know, I mean, they're just, they have no emotional or personal attachment to that era, so why not just leave it alone and set it where it originally was set? What do you think of that very last page of issue four? With Jesus Christ? Yeah. That freaked me out. I mean, now don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I you know, have a very religious, you know, uh, upbringing and all that, and it, it doesn't freak me out in a religious sense. It freaks me out in a sense of where the hell did that? Yeah, come yeah, exactly. From? What the hell are they trying to say here? That he got, he challenged God, so God struck him down, and then Jesus welcomed him into His kingdom. I don't quite understand. Or that. he's a Christ, or he's a modern Christ figure, and maybe. You know this. This is going out there, but maybe Chaikin is is doing like not only an, a, a novel, a, a comic book version of Gladiator, but what would a Jesus figure be like in the modern era? Maybe it's uh, actually Qui Gon Jinn. <laughs> well, the well, the, well, I knew that because when I got the soundtrack to this comic, uh, they had Qui Gon's Noble End, <laughs> and it was before I read it. I was just like really pissed off. <laughs> But no, I, I, I know I'm, I'm 
I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot to put it in my notes because, yeah, I got to that. You know, always knowing where this story ends gets me a little bit down when I, whenever I reread it because I, I love this story so much. It is so enjoyable. I, I really think that the character of, of Hugo Danner and, and the story of him is, is really fascinating and all. But it's that lame ass ending where it literally does feel like it feels like either, you know, Wiley just ran out of things to to put this poor guy through, or he he ran out of pages. You know what I mean? One yeah. or the other. It's just like, well, I got to wrap this up, and so he just literally has God strike him down, and it's such a, I I hate to say it, but it's such a stupid ending. It really is dumb. And so then to get to the end of this, and not only do you get that dumb ending, but then you've got Jesus on the last page. I, you know, believe me, I'm not, I'm, I'm not making a comment on religion. I'm not knocking Jesus. I'm just saying, well, what, is, what does he have to do with this ending? I don't, I really don't get it. I'm glad you brought it up because, yeah, that I did mean, bother it, me. It, 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 like you, it didn't make me feel uncomfortable because I was raised Catholic. I'm, I'm used to... I'm used to the image of Jesus in the house. So, right. no, I mean, it would be any. It just I mean, felt it felt very out of place, and it felt like they were trying to beat us over the head with the overall theme of the book. And I think right. it's unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we need another page. Russ, draw Hugo and Jesus. Well, you know, for that <laughs> matter, there's there was another one. Let me th- see what page it was. I think it was in the end of issue two. There was another page like that that equally didn't make any sense to me. Which you're about the Richard was, Nixon one? Richard Nixon. It must be issue three. Yeah, it's just like, what the hell does Richard Nixon have to do with any of this? Yeah, and I really thought that maybe he was going to be in the next issue somehow. That maybe maybe Nixon was going to be referenced, or maybe Hugo would have something to do with Nixon's downfall through water. You know, something. I, I you know, there's nothing. I mean, he never makes an appearance. In any of the issues, other than that one last page, kind of like the Jesus page in number four, and so ultimately you're left with a what the fuck? It just doesn't make any sense. And so yeah, so but, you, um, <laughs> so Jesus, I'm just so confused. <laughs> it sounds like the beginning of a joke. Jesus and Richard Nixon walk into a bar. <laughs> they go. both say, "My mother was a saint." I mean, it's just. <laughs> I just know. I, I honestly would like somebody who has never read any of the Gladiators, like almost completely unfamiliar with the story, to read this and, and, and tell us what they think. Because, or you know, or just talk to them afterwards. Because, like you said, I liked this. I picked this up because I'm very familiar with the material I've read. This is. The Gladiator by Philip Wiley is no joke. My favorite book of all time. Oh, awesome! I can I can read this book again and again and again, and I can get something out of it every single time I read it, or I will be reminded of something. And it just it just it's it's a comfortable book. It's the kind of thing I want to see made into like a TNT original miniseries. Yes, yes. Well, you, know, uh, you, you say that, and I know that you and I both talked about something else, and it's it, Superman. Yeah, that book by Tom DeHaven. Yeah, I would say you know if you've never read Gladiator, you know I think that those two books together would make a a, a great read, mm-hmm. a great complimentary read is to read Gladiator and then turn around and read It's Superman, 
And uh, yeah, I, I think they're almost like bookends. <laughs> I think it's it, it, that that would make a great little saga. Well, this was adapted into film once. Yeah, I heard it wasn't in very 19, good though. It in nineteen thirty-eight, it was made into a comedy. Yeah, it's just like what? Okay, so they've been screwing up comic book characters for decades. Great, thanks. <laughs> for much Man. longer than any I'm, of us anticipated. Yeah. I, I'm glad to know that we're not the only ones that had to suffer through it. But no, my only pro- my only worry is is that you would not get a director and a writer that would understand what the book is about, right? And would try to turn it into something else, like setting it in Vietnam or something, because a period piece would be would be tough to sell. Period pieces in general are tough to sell. But uh, you know, this this is one of the few times I will ever like dig my heels in on an issue uh, relating to to literature or, or pop culture in general. Is this like no? Damn it! It's got to be set in the teens. <laughs> it just has to be. You know, I could see this being something that uh, like Peter Jackson. Oh, as yeah. much as I didn't think very much of his uh, his King Kong. The visuals he gave us for the period of New York, you know, the New York City with the with the CGI and all that he did, I could see taking that style technology and adapting it to the Hugo Danner story, and and almost making it a hybrid of of that King Kong New York City CGI technology and like the old Fleischer Superman cartoons, like mm-hmm. some sort of mix of those. And doing the Hugo Danner story as a real movie, and I think it could be incredible. I mean, handled correctly, not done cheesy. You know, give it some real verisimilitude, and I think that it, you you could have a blockbuster on your hands from a character that you know. I would say that you know, ninety nine point nine percent of even comic book fans probably don't know, and. uh yeah, I, I would love to see them do something like that. And you know, who knows? I mean, if, if comic book movies continue to be, you know, the 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 bread and butter for Hollywood, you know, for too many more years, you know, eventually we may see, you know, the 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 barrel scrape so low that eventually they'll get <laughs> to characters like you know, not that he's a bottom of the barrel character. I'm just saying that, you know, they're going to run out of you know. Hulks and Iron Mans and Spider Mans eventually, and they're going to have to search for other properties. And I think this one is a potential gold mine done correctly, or at least one movie that could be really huge. So, yeah, I agree. I agree. It, it would be nice. I just, I just wanted a, I just wanted a miniseries treatment just to give it the breadth that it needs because it's a very. It, it's not an overly long book, but a lot happens. Yeah, that's true. And and the the things that he goes through, especially especially like towards the the the, the last third where he goes to that farm and works for that just complete bastard and ends up having sex with the man's wife <laughs> and then killing a bull, which they kind of skirt around in in this one, which I was surprised because yeah, I figured too. it gave it gave Chaykin another chance to write a sex scene. But uh, you yeah, know, I was thinking it, as I read that, I was thinking, I, I you know, as, as vague as the book is in my memory now, I was thinking I thought he bagged her. So yeah, I did think that that was kind of <laughs> another notch on the old belt. For, yeah, there you for go. Hugo Danner. <laughs> I will screw anything. And, and, <laughs> and, 
That is the funny thing, is that the one girl, Iris, that was the cousin of his friend that, that said she was insatiable, even she's just like, I gotta get out of town to get away from this He guy. wore her out, man. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> well... Well, I guess I, that's... I think we might go out on that high note right there. <laughs> Special thanks to Michael Bailey for joining me on this episode. Please be sure to check out both of the other podcasts that Michael regularly hosts. There's the Views from the Longbox podcast, which you may find at fortressofbaileytude.com forward slash views from the longbox. And... There's the From Crisis to Crisis podcast, which Michael co-hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which you may find at feeds.feedburner.com forward slash From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, all one word. And finally, I have a very special announcement to make. Since recording this episode, and spurred on by the great conversations we've had on this and many other topics, both on and off the air... Michael and I are teaming up to produce a brand new weekly podcast entitled Tales of the Justice Society of America. We are very excited about this project and are both looking forward to it and to working together on a regular basis discussing some of our absolutely favorite comic book characters and concepts, and we hope that you'll join us. This new podcast kicks off soon, likely within a few days following the release of this episode, so look for it. That's Tales of the Justice Society of America with my pal, Michael Bailey, and myself, Scott Gardner. Thanks for listening to Back to the Bins, and take care. They are the first and best team of mystery men ever to assemble for the cause of justice. The heroes that have been part of their ranks are legendary. They fight for America and for democracy, and yet no one has devoted a podcast to their exploits. Until now. Unfortunately, it's hosted by these guys. I don't care what Julia Schwartz says. Yeah, league sounds like a baseball team. I f- hate baseball. So, there you go. Um, first F-bomb of the show. Um, How did you not- beat me to the first F-bomb of the show? <laughs> Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey present Tales of the Justice Society of America Fridays at twotruefreaks.libson.com Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me right back here next week when who knows what mystery guest host will be popping by. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, and criticisms for the show via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. We are now accepting requests for guest host spots on the show, so if you'd like to join me in an episode, let me know. Also, please be sure to check out the home website for Back to the Bins at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to drop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? 
Thanks, and I'll see you next week.